Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. And it's episode 207 with Jeff from Abilitat. Jeff, I asked Jeff prior to us recording what his title was, and you should have heard him. So now I'm going to let him tell you because I love what he said, and so I think it's important that everybody hears this. So what, so what is your title, Jeff? Well, I, I'm not really into titles, but if you want to identify me, um, I am a formerly, uh, a former former drug user, former substance user, formerly incarcerated person, formerly homeless person, and now the executive director of Habilitat in Hawaii. Pretty cool. See, I love that. And that's pretty interesting because we, we have these promises that we tell people that you're going to have this life that's beyond your wildest dreams. And when someone hears homeless been in prison and now he's the executive director of a rehab facility wow so tell us what was it like what happened and what is it like today oh boy well there's lots of stories like everybody else <laughs> but um you know what it was like was i got i got involved uh, i grew up in dallas texas um i got involved with uh substance use starting at you know 11 12 years old and then it progressed from there by the time i was 16 years old, I was uh, using IV drugs. By the time I was 18 years old, I was a full-blown heroin addict. Uh, went through multiple uh, short-term programs, therapists, uh, lots and lots of 12-step meetings. Um, and uh, after I turned 18, my parents were terrified uh, because I was getting in lots of legal trouble and, and getting in lots of uh, physical altercations, and it was getting very dangerous. Um, so they basically tricked me into coming to Hawaii. Um, they lured me here. It sounded like a fun thing to do. They brought me out here for a tour uh, of this program called Habilitat. It was like this really nice place, oceanfront. Uh, and in my mind, I thought, well, this is perfect. Um, and then when we got here, they took my father on a tour this way and took me on a tour this way. And by the time I made it all the way around, he, they'd taken him, put him in a car, taken him back to the airport and they basically marooned me there. I was not happy about it. Uh, but I thought, you know, well, you know if you're gonna be stuck, Hawaii's a great place to be stuck. Little did I know that um, I was going to be entering into a very long-term, very difficult, challenging program that was set up to change my entire being. Um, I didn't like it, I was upset, but I, I, I stayed. Um, I actually, I ran away after about the third day and ended up having to come back because they wouldn't allow me to come home. I'm on an island. There's nowhere to go. Um, so uh, I came back and I finished the program. Um, they recommended that I not go back to Texas right away. So I went to college here. I went to the University of Hawaii. Uh, got a job at the mall. You know, I was 20 years old at the time. And um, after about a year of that, uh, I went home to visit my family over Christmas. And I got connected with an old girlfriend. And of course, uh, you know, um, that was a bad move. They warned me against it. So I came back to Hawaii and, and then I decided, well, you know, I'm gonna move back to Texas. And everybody told me, bad idea. You're not ready to do that. Uh, I didn't listen, I did it anyway. No sooner did I get back to Texas that the relationship fell apart. Um, and uh, I didn't handle it very well. I began with alcohol. Uh, started drinking. Actually, I began going to clubs 
Uh, I was a young man, and just by that time I was 21, so I was just legal. I would go to clubs, and I started off just uh, ordering water with lemon or soda water with lemon or lime. So, you know, I looked the part, right? Uh, but eventually, after a couple months of that, eventually I started drinking. One thing led to another, went from, from uh, the water, pretending, to alcohol, to pills, to cocaine, to methamphetamine, and then to heroin. Uh, and that was the progression. Within about a year, I was back at square one. Uh, started getting in trouble again. Um, arrested multiple times. Uh, physical altercations again. Uh, just a mess. Just a complete mess. And uh, my attorney in Texas finally told me, you really need to get out of Dallas. Um, you know, this is not good. You're not going to keep getting away with this stuff. They're going to lock you up. I had done a couple of quick stints uh, in, in jail there. And then um, I packed up and fled. I was actually on probation. And I fled to Hawaii and got a job, uh, went into the hospital. I was on methadone at the time, went into the hospital to detox from the methadone to try and get myself together, attending lots of 12-step meetings. Um, and it all happened again here. Um, mm -hmm. So finally in 19, so this would have been, I came back here in like 93, I think. So finally by 95, I was homeless, uh, living on the streets here, in and out of jail. And then finally, um, I was on probation here as well, uh, in two different states on probation. And finally, I, I violated here and they put me in jail. I was, I was homeless. I was addicted. I was on methadone again. Um, and they put me in jail and wouldn't let me out. So I, I, the last time I ever kicked, I, I did so on the, on the floor of the jail. Um, and then, uh, eventually I wised up after I got to feeling better and I called Habilitat again. By this time I was 29 years old. Uh, that was 1996, I believe, 97, something like that. And uh, they got me out of jail. They came and visited me in jail and uh, made sure that I was sincere. And by that time, I was really done. I just, you know, I, I was tired of it. It wasn't fun anymore. It was, uh, I had hepatitis C. Uh, I was very skinny. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And I lonely. I was very, very lonely. Uh, the streets are a lonely place. They're a dangerous place. Even in Hawaii, uh, the streets are a dangerous place. Um, so I came back into the program, um, about 11 months into the program, I had to contend with, uh, absconding from Texas. I was actually arrested again while I was about 11 months in the program and I was extradited back to Texas. Um, and, uh, the, the guy, um, our found, the founder of Habilitat was still alive back then, Vinny Marino. He was a genius, this guy. Um, he was not real happy about the fact that they pulled me out of his program. So he sent someone to Texas, uh, to get me back to go stand in court and, and advocate for me. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, they were impressed with the fact that someone would come all the way from Hawaii to speak for me. And they allowed me to go back to the program with some very strict, um, you know, conditions. And I went back to the program and I, you know, I, I, I was very grateful. Um, I was convinced that I had 18 years to do in the penitentiary there and somehow they got me out of it. And I thought, well, I thought, you know what, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. Um, so they started to cultivate my strengths. I think they, they, I was so lost. I think they saw some qualities in me that I didn't 
know that I had. Uh, and they began to cultivate that, and they began to train me and teach me, and they sent me out to uh, outside classes, and um, you know, and I was, you know, part of it was I was there at the right time with the right attitude. But in 2000, our founder, my mentor, Vinnie Marino, passed away, and his uh, his wife took over the organization. And I worked, I finished my training with her, worked very closely with her for a couple of years, and then she passed away. Um, so it was kind of one of those things like, well, he was the guy that was trained. He has a passion for it. You know, here you go. It's, it's your turn to keep this legacy alive. Uh, I was the program director at Habilitat, not the executive director, but the program director for about 16 years um, under a gentleman by the name of uh, Danny Katata, who was a graduate from our program back in the 70s. Um, and then uh, in 2015, he retired and um, I, I took over the helm of the ship and um, have been, uh, you know, trying to help people all these years. So in a nutshell, that's basically my story. Obviously, there's a lot of details, uh, you know, that we could go into, but uh, yeah, that, that was my life. Homeless, um, seriously addicted to different narcotics, um, and uh, incarcerated, and life uh, without meaning, without passion, just kind of wandering lost, and, um, you know, they helped me find myself, and they helped me find a cause and a passion and they helped me understand that my serenity and my sobriety is uh, very much contingent on my uh, giving to others and my service to others. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's what I've done. I've followed those teachings and, uh, you know, the promises that you had mentioned. Um, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that I would have the kind of life that I do now, but I don't for a minute want to sit here and pretend that it all came easy because it didn't. I worked very hard for a very long time, and I'm not talking about just working uh, a job. I had, I had to work on me, and I had to reconcile all those childhood issues. I had to reckon, I had to grow emotionally. I had to grow uh, in maturity. Uh, like a lot of us, uh, I was not very good at relationships. Um, I had lots of resentments. I held on to stuff and didn't know how to let it go. Um, emotionally, I was very immature. Um, so I, I had to uh, I had to learn and grow. And that took, you know, not only did that take, uh, it took a willingness and it took a commitment, but it also took um, the ability to go seek out the people that could give me not what I wanted, but what I needed. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very, very blessed. And I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I know 100% for sure that I'm one of the very lucky ones. A lot of my friends didn't make it out alive. Uh, a lot of my old friends are still incarcerated. Um, some of my friends took their own lives. So I've seen, you know, all those kind of things. So I'm, you know, I'm very, very blessed, very, very lucky that I, found my way um, to a group of people that would kind of reach down and, 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 and pull me out of the mess and put me on a different course. Um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that it was a uh, divine intervention. Um, God had a, a plan for me. He, um, you know, I, I, I think the divine creator, uh, 
you know, saw that whatever was going on with me and said, you know, this would make you very, um, a very compelling story to help with other people. So um, that's what I do. Um, you know, my background is actually part of my credentials. Um, you know, looking back on it, I don't regret it. Uh, I wish I had done things differently, but between me and you, I have, a, I have friends that I went to high school with that kind of took the, the normal path, if you will. Yeah. And frankly, they're kind of boring, you know? <laughs> um, no offense to them or whatever, but it's ironic because you know, in high school, I was voted least likely to survive. Wow. It's so crazy. Uh, but now a lot of those people turn to me for advice about their kids, you know, or, or what to do about their relationships or whatever. And it's, it's kind of an interesting turn of event. Uh, I'm very grateful. I live. It's my belief that if you want to succeed in this world, um, you have to find a place of gratitude and you have to exemplify that gratitude. So I'm, I'm very grateful to all the people that helped me along the way. And there were many. It wasn't just one person. There were many people that helped me. Uh, but what I, what I found is that the more that I sought help, the more people showed up to provide it for me. So, um, and I, you know, and that's still going on today. I'm very blessed. I, I surrounded myself with a group of mentors. They're further along the road than I am that keep me in line, keep me in check and keep me on the path. So that's basically in a nutshell, my story. Okay. For one, I want to say thank you for telling us that. That was, uh, you know, I have to, I was really excited when you guys reached out to me to come on the show. And I don't really say that very often, I have to say, but I was like, wow, this program sounds so interesting. And I, I have to say, like, for, to your parents, I don't know if they're still alive, but what, how, the, like, the wherewithal that they found this back in that time, because there was no internet back then, right? There was not, like, that they went and got on Dr. Google, and they're like, my son, I'm losing my son, which, you know, as a mom, I know that that was, they must have been, like, desperate, sure. right? And yeah, they were, yeah. I'm sure, like, because I know it being a mom and I just think, oh my gosh, your parents and how did they have the wherewithal and how did they find Habitat and what was it like back then and what was Vinny like and his wife and how did this all come to, <laughs> I, I want to hear yeah. about it because I do find okay. it very interesting. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, my family found Habitat, there was a, uh, and I can disclose this because it was all over the news and everything. There was a very famous person, Ryan O'Neill's son, Griffin O'Neill, who was in the program. And I can disclose this because it was uh, it, it was on the front cover of People magazine. Okay. And uh, Ryan O'Neill's son, Griffin, was in the program. He was doing very well. And actually, I had I went to a private high school. I did really poorly in high school. ADD, uh, dys I'm dyslexic, all these other things. Um, and school was a, not a fun experience for me, but I had two friends that I went to high school with that were already at Habilitat. So my parents had talked to their parents, they read the magazine article, and they, you know, they thought, uh, if we put him on an island, he can't run away. Because they were putting me in programs all over Texas, and I'd stay a day or two, and then I would bounce. And I would hitchhike or call a friend or a girlfriend or whatever and pick me up, and I would disappear for a few weeks. Um, so um, they, they decided to bring me on an island where it was going to be a long swim home. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, Vinny, yeah, Vinny was very much alive and involved when I got to Habilitat. Vinny was a very interesting guy. He was uh, Sicilian from Little Italy in New York. 
Um, he was also a former drug user. Uh, he'd worked for a bunch of other programs, and at, at some point, and he always he worked for a program. And there'd be problems, and he's like, "I don't want to deal with this. This is crazy." He'd go to another one. He'd work for there for a while, and finally decided, "You know what? I think I'm just going to open my own. I think I can do it better." Um, he realized he was really ahead of his time because he realized long, long, long time ago um, that the whole system of third-party payment, that is insurance payments or whatever, was going to basically put a chokehold on the treatment industry where they would be very reluctant to pay for more than you know a few weeks of treatment. And sure enough, that's exactly what comes to pass. Mm-hmm. So he envisioned a program that would treat the whole person, not just the substance issue. Um, and um, you know, now we understand that as a, a criminological approach or criminology approach. Um, you know, he, he set up a program that would address all the criminogenic needs and treat the whole person, not just the substance use. He saw the substance use as a symptom rather than the problem. And it was a symptom, not of one thing, but a great many other things, uh, upbringing, uh, lack of coping skills, lack of uh, vocational skills, lack of education, you know, all these different things. There's a bunch of different things. So what he, he did is he wanted a one-stop one uh, shop to deal with all these things. And he realized that the typical um, drug user, substance user that he was going to be working with what, it was going to be the people that have tried everything else to no avail. They've tried um, the 30-day programs. They've tried the 12-step programs and continued to relapse, continued to relapse. And um, he created a, a system that's based on structure, very highly structured, hard work, family values. Um, and uh, it was a very different approach. Um, he had come up. Uh, through Synanon, which kind of turned out to be like a cult back in the 50s and 60s. Um, But he took bits and pieces that he liked from all these different places, either he'd been in as a substance user or that he'd worked for, and he took bits and pieces that he liked and created his own, and then he brought in his own personality or whatever. Um, He envisioned a place where we could take people off the streets or out of the penitentiary, uh, put them through a, a, a very rigid training program to teach them the coping skills, decision-making, how to make, you know, everything from the ground up. Basically, it's like re-raising a child because we, we started, you know, at the very basics and then work our way up. But then to include things like vocational skills, he wanted, he understood that just getting someone clean isn't enough. That's mm-hmm. very short-sighted. Mm-hmm. You have to provide them with the skill set to stay clean with a support mechanism, a support group, which, you know, the 12-step programs are great for that if you can get to a point where you're ready for that. But then also um, education, job skills. Um, so now we have, thanks to him, uh, we have a probably the most evolved vocational workforce development program in the country. Uh, we have 13 different tracks that people can take. Um, but almost, if, if they stay through the whole thing, it almost guarantees a, a, a employment, a career employment at a living wage. Uh, we're licensed contractors. We have a, a A, B, and C license. Um, we can do pretty much any kind of construction, and we a lot, that's a very popular program, especially with the guys, even some of the girls. Um, you know, uh, we have a sales program. We have a, a great culinary program. If you were to come to Hawaii and go to one of the uh, 
fancy restaurants in Hawaii, you will find our graduates as the sous chefs, the sushi chefs, the, um, you know, they work in some of the finest restaurants uh, in, in the state of Hawaii. Um, so, so basically our founder created this very unique, very different program. Uh, it's not 30 days long, it's 30 months long. Um, residential treatment program, it's on the ocean front, it's a very nice place. If you were to look at the pictures, you might think, oh, this is one of those Malibu type programs. <laughs> Nothing like that. It's a very strict, very hard program. We're dealing with a tough population. And some people would tell you that Habilitat is the hardest or toughest program in the country. Uh, we certainly make no apologies for that. We're dealing with a tough crowd. Um, but uh, we get good results. You know, we take, we take the people that pretty much everybody else has given up on. And then uh, about 63% of the time, we turn them around and turn them into winners, reintegrate them back into society. Um, they become, you know, they become assets to their community, assets to their families. They can go back to raising their children. And in a lot of cases, they've neglected those children. Um, but we pull them back in the driver's seat. And um, it's a very, it's, you know, obviously it's very rewarding work. Um, there is something very magical about being able to help people that everybody else has uh, given up on. Um, so, you know, kind of our, our mission is to help those that have not been able to find help elsewhere. Um, so that's kind of our mission. Now, there, there is some limitations to what we do. We are not a mental health facility. So we okay. do this whole thing without um, psychiatrists. So nobody in our program has taken any kind of psychotropic drugs. It's, and it's not that we're, you know, we're not anti, uh, I'm not anti anything. Anything that works, I'm fine with it. Um, if 12-step works for you, fantastic. If church works for you, fantastic. If meditation, prayer, yoga, I don't care. There are many paths to treatment, I mean to uh, sobriety, to success. Um, and I'm okay with any of them. Our focus is on a very specific a specific demographic of people. Uh, most of them are usually formerly incarcerated or still incarcerated. Most of them have tried other things. I have one girl in our program. In fact, I think you spoke with her, Owie, who's my uh, executive assistant and our PR person. Uh, she's 28 years old. She's been in 25 treatment programs. Um, and you know, I had been through 14 before I came to Habilitat, and I'm such a knucklehead, I had to do Habilitat twice. Um, so um, what was it like? Um, you asked about what it was like with Vinny. Well, you know, I came to Habilitat in 1985, the first time the program was founded in 71. Um, so it was, you know, up and running and running smoothly by that time. Uh, Vinny was a character. He was very good. The kind of guy that when he walked in the room, you know, you felt his presence. Everybody turned, to, you know, stopped and turned and looked. Uh, he was. Uh, I, I now that I've gone and received formal training in things like cognitive behavioral therapy and other treatment modalities, evidence-based treatment modalities. What I came to figure out is that he was ahead of his time. He was teaching us stuff that now they say is evidence-based and they have all these training regimens for, he was teaching us that before it was a thing, right? So he had figured out, um, you know, different aspects on how to help people before 
it was all scientifically evidence-based or whatever. So, um, you know, he was ahead of his time. He was a visionary. There's no doubt about it. He was also very outspoken. He made uh, a lot of people nervous. He called out the government on their shenanigans. Uh, I remember, I remember the very last um, press conference he did when he was bad. He, he he actually unfortunately passed away from liver cancer from hepatitis C. Wow. Um, but I remember his last uh, press conference. He called our governor a freaking moron <laughs> on uh, on the nightly television or whatever. Um, so you know he he ruffled a lot of feathers and um, you know sometimes that was good sometimes it wasn't. But I'll tell you, to tell you what kind of a person he was, as he was uh, struggling and, and dying, actually, he created a program in Habilitat that would address hepatitis C. He got us connected with the very best uh, researchers and, and doctors here in Honolulu. Uh, and ever since that point, um, anybody that comes into Habilitat, if they want to be tested for it, they get tested. If they are positive, they get treated at no cost to them. Um, it's part of our program. I went through the, um, uh, um, the treatment for it, um, back in the day, many years ago, 10, 12 years ago when it was, a, oh, it was grueling treatment. Um, but I've been virus free, I guess, 10, 12 years now. And that's all because he created a program to address that need. Uh, because at that time, you know, nobody knew a whole lot about it or whatever. Uh, but that, you know, that's the kind of person he was. He was dying from it, so he created a program to make sure nobody else would have to, you know. So uh, he was instrumental in getting Habilitat up and running. He used to brag in meetings about how Habilitat would continue long after he was gone and that that was a testament to his brilliance. And I can't argue that. He trained a bunch of us to do the work that he, he created, and Habilitat's thriving. Um, today we're doing well. We have 109 people in residence um, that live there. Uh, we're actually licensed for 150, but we try to keep it um, a little bit lower than that for quality assurance sake. Uh, we do take people from all over the country. Um, we um, we have we've had people from every every state in the nation. Uh, it's a little more tricky now because of COVID. The state regulations says that when they come in, they have to go through quarantine, and you know it's uh, kind of a mess right now. But you know this too shall pass. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what Vinny was like. He was an amazing, bigger, larger than life character. Um, you know, I was uh, in staff training actually when he passed away. Uh, but, you know, I was lucky enough to spend time with him, um, lucky enough to have learned from him, um, and lucky enough to be trained by him. I'm, I'm very blessed. Uh, then I got to be very close with his wife. Uh, she was like a surrogate mother to me and uh, treated me um, very firm but very fair. But really, I think it was her that saw my potential and, um, you know, worked very hard. In fact, the last two years of her life, she spent training me. Um, while she was sick with cancer. Um, uh, but, you know, she wanted to ensure that uh, the place continued, and she worked really hard to, to make sure the right people were in place for that. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Did, did I answer your question? There was another part of your question. I don't remember what it was. I just kind of got off. I, well, it was good. Cause what was he like? What was it like? Um, has it changed much? I mean, it sounds like you might have added more programs from when he was here, yeah. right? 
yeah, with well, the times. We have to change with times, right? Yeah. Well, and that was part of what he taught us. It's an ever-evolving organization. So that, that was part of the training is it's not like we, we figure it out and we stay that way. It's the whole mentality that he programmed into us is you're always searching for better ways. It's, it's ever-evolving. So, yes, things there's no doubt. Um, and things will continue to change as long as I'm involved because you learn new things. You figure out uh, new ways. They come out with new methods. Um, you know, um, one of the things that I did when I became uh, the director was started making sure that all of our clinicians, and actually not just our clinicians, but a lot of our uh, vocational training staff um, are trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's the, you know, one of the biggest tools that we use. And we use it on a very, very large scale. We even use it in groups. We even teach the residents how to use it with one another. Um, so, um, yeah, and you know, ethics, uh, ethics are always changing. So, you know, I added some things, ethic, annual ethics training for the staff members. Um, we've added new vocational programs. We're constantly doing that. We're now working to get some certification programs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's always evolving. And, you know, if you want to, if, if you want to um, remain relevant and successful at treating people, uh, you know, people, the, the, we can say, well, you know, drug, drug addiction is the same. Well, yeah, the substances may be, but even that has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, in my day, either you were an alcoholic, you snorted, smoked, or shot cocaine, or the same thing with meth, or you were a heroin addict. Um, nowadays, you know, there's oh. spice and flaca and ketamine, and I mean, you know, there's all kind of new substances. Um, so it creates a different dynamic. Along with that, uh, what I've seen in the last 20 some odd years that I've been doing this is the the end of the circumstances with the individuals has changed. You know, back in in, in the 70s, um, most of the heroin addicts were old, uh, you know, older people, street people, whatever. Nowadays, that demographic is different. It could be 19-year-olds. Um, you know, back in the day. So the dynamics of that have all changed. So the program has to adapt and evolve to meet the needs of the people that we serve. Um, so certainly, to answer your question, um, yeah, we, we are constantly evolving. We're constantly evaluating what we do. We're constantly evaluating the outcomes and, and the results of what we do so that we can tweak things to make it better. Uh, and I'll give you a for instance. We recognized a couple years ago that we really needed a transitional um, part of our program. For the longest time, we're like, well, the program's three, you know, two and a half years long or whatever. Um, they get a trend. There's a transitional phase of our program. So the final three or four months is, a, is all dedicated to tra transitioning. But what we found is when people left, they were struggling to get housing. You know, they, we, we, they would get a job, whatever. So I, I changed the rules. I made it to where you, you um, housing and employment is a prerequisite for graduation. You have to have a place to live and a job before you can graduate, before you can leave. Well, COVID has exposed some things that now, uh, because a lot of people are not paying the rent because they're not employed, mm -hmm. um, landlords are being very cautious about who they want to rent to. So when they find out, oh, well, you don't really have an employment history for the last two years, and you just got out of a treatment program, no, we're not renting to you. 
So in the last uh, six months, what we found is some of our graduates are really struggling to find housing. So we have to meet the needs. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go scrape up and get some support, scrape up some money. We're going to go buy a house. And then we're going to allow our graduates to go live there until they get some rental history. We will become their rental history. They can live there six or eight months or whatever, and then they can move on. So you meet the needs, and the needs are ever-changing, and the program has to adapt to meet the needs of the people we serve. So that, that's a pretty good example of what, you know, what, what we do to evaluate the issue and find the solution to it. I love it. I love it. So I have, like, a bunch of questions. And sure. you, you don't have to go on. Just tell me what you – I mean, you don't have to be – you can be elaborate. Be, answer it any way you want to. So tell me this, is there a family aspect to it? Is there a family program that's affiliated with this? So does the family get involved? Because my one big thing is like, you know, so many times they let people out of treatment and they're like, okay, you've been here for 30 days. You paid me a check for, you know, a large, large figure. And, um, and I, my person has been there for 28 days and I just let them out and they're going to come in my house. And I think that they're all fixed. And you know, the rehab didn't say to them, Oh, by the way, all you're getting for this 28 days is a good night's sleep. Cause you know, your person's locked up. So what do you do with the family aspect? So that's a really good question. It's a really tricky thing. Uh, let me start off. First of all, um, most of the people that come to a village at, uh, come on some kind of a scholarship. Um, certainly, if the families have the ability to pay us for the services, then we will welcome that. But I have never turned anybody away because of money. Never. Uh, we don't bill insurance, so it's not an insurance-based thing. They have to have insurance in case they get sick or whatever, but we're not billing for treatment. So that being said, um, there are limited scholarship opportunities available to people. We only give scholarships to the most motivated, highly motivated individuals, not, not motivated families that motivated individuals. Um, your question is a very good question. Um, so we do have a, we do not have family therapy per se, but there is a family that we do try to address the family issues. Um, what we found through the years is that by and large, most of the families are not willing to make changes. Mm -hmm. uh, they just want them to send their kid to us and we're going to get them well, which is not what we do. We don't get anybody well. Um, we teach them skills, how to navigate the, the world and how to deal with life on long term. Um, but uh, there is a point uh, at which they start to interact with the families. But a caveat to that is if, they're, if their families are drug users, we don't allow them to have contact. Um, if the families are willing to learn, we will take the time to start to teach them what they need to know. But through all these years, what I found is most parents don't want to listen. I'll give you a, for instance, we had somebody graduate a few years ago and the parents wanted to buy them a car, set them up in a house. They wanted to have a graduation party for graduating rehab. I about went through the roof. I said, you're going to undo it. We just taught this individual how to be self-reliant and independent. And now you're going to swoop in and undo everything that we just taught them. What a lot of families don't recognize and don't realize is that People who become involved with substance use, their self-esteem goes through the, the floor. Their self-image is shattered. They have no self-esteem, not any healthy self-esteem. And what we do through our process is we rebuild that based on a merit-based goal-setting system that brings somebody's confidence and their self-image back up. And what we figured out through the years is that self-image, self-esteem, and self-reliance are interconnected. 
And when people come in and they start doing things for the individual that they could do themselves, they start to diminish their self-esteem and their self-image. Yeah. Uh, um, what we, we have a saying that the, the quickest way to take someone's dignity is for you to do for them what they're perfectly capable of doing for themselves. Uh, a lot of families, and usually what I found is it's out of guilt and shame that the families want to try and make up for whatever happened in the past by buying them things or by doing things for them. And what they don't realize is that everything they do for them lowers their self-esteem a notch or two. So families that want to learn, we will teach them. Um, we do not have like family therapy sessions, things like that. Frankly, most of the people that come to us, they need to get the hell away from their parents. Um, uh, you know, they need to be they need to be disconnected for a while so that they can grow up without the parental interference. Um, you know, I, I've never met a drug addict or substance user. I know a lot of people don't like that. I identify as a former drug addict, and people are like, "Oh, you know, that's not PC." I'm not a PC person, to be real honest with you. I was a drug addict. I was addicted to drugs. Let's call it what it was. Now, I'm not. I don't. I don't typically call other people that or whatever. But that's what I was, and that worked for me. Um, but um, shoot, I just had a senior moment. Um, I've never met a substance user that doesn't have somewhere along the line an enabler, right? So there's always an enabler somewhere. So I tell parents all the time, go to Al-Anon. Go to Al-Anon, and you're going to learn a lot of our, um, you know, and it's free. And you can go anywhere in the country, right? Al-Anon's everywhere, uh, even other countries. And they teach a very similar mindset of, uh, you know, how to deal with the substance user or whatever. Uh, now, towards the end of our program, well, let me back up. Some of the people that come to our program, they have children. It is very much our responsibility to train them. We have formal parenting classes. In fact, next week we have a fatherhood class that's starting just for fathers. Oh, that's it's a awesome. 12-week it's a 12-week course that's run by an outside agency that comes in and teaches our people. We do that a lot. We partner with other nonprofits. And my goal is to have to bring all the services necessary to improve people's lives to bear right of the middle cat. I don't sit and pretend that uh, we're experts at so we have to depend on outside agencies to come in and teach things. Um, but we're going to address the parenting issues. Eventually, we're going to try and bring their kids there so that they can start to uh, interact with their kids again. And the frequency of interaction uh, escalates with their time in the program. Um, where parents are concerned, um, really, in the beginning, we want them out of it. Leave us alone. Let us do our job. Just butt out. Stay away from us. We allow them to write and call. We monitor all phone calls, all incoming mail. And we do that not so much um, as uh, as surveillance. Well, it is surveillance, but um, we want to understand the family dynamic. So when the mom writes stuff like, I'm so sorry, and I promise you I'm going to do this, we, we take that letter and then we call the family like, wait a minute, this is not how we want to communicate with your son. What we need you to do is moral support. We need you to be a little bit more tough on them. So we start to coach them. Um, and uh, we do everything we can do to help the families change, short of putting them in the program as well. Um, some of them probably could benefit from coming into the program as well, but uh, and, and not because of their drug use or whatever, because of their emotional issues or whatever. Um, 
but you know, are you going to blame? I, I wouldn't blame my mother for being an emotional wreck after what I put her through. God bless her. She's still alive. Um, my father unfortunately passed away in 1992 mm. to AIDS. He died from AIDS, mm. uh, which was a traumatic experience itself. But um, yeah, so does that answer your question? We do have some things in place, but uh, it is limited, but we do make effort to change the families as well. Well, for one, I just, I love all this information because um, I believe, you know, this is, this disease is so cunning, baffling, powerful, right? It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what your zip code was. It doesn't matter what cars are in your driveway. It doesn't matter any, I mean, I just know of a young mom, 41, you know, she just died. It was jail, you know, she went institutions, jail, and now she's dead, you know, four little kids. Uh and it's reality. It's reality. And, you know, revolving doors of rehabs. And when I saw what you guys did, I was like, oh my gosh, my lights went on. I'm like, cause I'm a former recovery coach, you know? So for me, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. I love everything you're doing. Um, and the fee. So you talked about the fees and what that is and you don't regret. And then my, my la pretty much my last question is it. So do you just take former prisoners or people that are in prison? What if it's somebody who came oh. But I just, what if it was some, like Ryan O'Neill's son? It wasn't like he came from, you know, jail. Right. Or right. you probably didn't either for that matter, right? Your parents right. could afford it. So, right. you know, hears this today and it's like, I just, I felt like your mom and dad felt, and I'm sorry about your dad, by the way. Um, but want to, they, they're like, this sounds like it could actually work. Sure. So, um, yeah, no, it's not only people from jail. Uh, it's a lot of people that are going to end up j in jail later if they don't right. get intervention, right? Um, the first time I came to the program, I, I wasn't in jail. The second time I was, uh, the first time I came, my family paid for the program. Ironically, uh, we charged, so it cost us $2,100 a month to keep someone there. That's the actual cost. Uh, if someone pays for services, we charge $12,000 enrollment fee and $2,000 a month. So it's basically our cost. Um, but if they can't pay, if they are not in a position to pay, we do have scholarship programs. Uh, about 40% of our population comes from other states. About 60% come from here. Uh, of the 60% that come from here, the vast majority either come, they're on their way to jail or they're coming out of jail. They, they violated probation or whatever. Most of the people that come from the mainland, the 40% of our population, they weren't in jail. Some of them never been in jail, not yet anyway. Um, so yeah, we, it's not just jail people. It's not a prison, prison diversion program at all. Um, so yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So I so want to bring you know, anybody, anybody that is interested in learning more about us, they can go to our website. We have a very, um, a very vast website, habilitat.com. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, go there. There's actually an, uh, an application on uh, the website where you can fill out the application and someone will call you back. However, I do want to explain that we're not going to, the application needs to be filled out by the individual seeking help, not their parents. <laughs> we get 100 phone calls a week from parents wanting help for their kids, but the kid doesn't want help. And there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. Um, but if you have a kid that's ready, if you're leveraging, like I'm going to throw if you don't uh, go get help or whatever, or those kind of things, um, then have the kid fill out the application. Give us a call. We have a 1-800 number, 1-800-872-2525. And if there's something we can do to help, we will. 
And if we can't help, maybe we can refer you to somebody that can. We are not the only long-term program in the country. There are several programs that are based on the Habilitat model. Um, and we'd be happy to try and help you. I mean, that's what we do. So, Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And I love, I want to just end with this. I love that we started, we did have a little conversation before recording. And we talked about what's going on in Hawaii and what's going on with COVID. And I have to say, I was really touched when you said that, you know, they let, there were people were homeless and didn't have any meals. And because of the, what you've taught the people that have gone through Habilitat, they could feed. How many people did you feed? Well, we, we got a call from the city of Honolulu and I guess the, the homeless shelter had to shut down because they had an outbreak and their kitchen was shut down. So they asked us to provide 500 meals a day. And uh, they called me on a Thursday. We were providing the 500 meals on the Friday, on, on the next day. Um, we, you know, so, and there've been other things. We've been involved with food distribution to the needy, um, uh, boxes of food, all kinds of things. So we're trying to do our part. You know, the reality, here's the reality. The community has supported us for 50 years. We've been in business 50 years. We saw that the community needed us, so we answered the call. Uh, and we will continue to. That's that's what a good organization is supposed to do. So, um, yeah. So, you know, if everybody does a little, nobody has to do a lot. We were in a position to help, so we did. Well, I love that. I love that. Because as you mentioned in your story, it's all about giving back, right? It's all about giving back. That was born center. Thank you so much for yeah. today. And I, when you said 1971, I'm like, they're 49 years. You're almost at 50 years. Yeah. Pretty cool January, stuff. January will be 50 years. I just have and to I, say. I've been there. I, I, yeah, it's a great thing. And I, I've been there for half of it. Isn't that so, awesome? Yeah. It's yeah, awesome. It well, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for all that you do for your community and for all of the people that have been through there. And I just, uh, I, I love your mission. I, and again, I'm, I'm like thrilled that I got to meet you. And thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. And next time you're in Hawaii, come out and have a visit. Oh, I'm we'll definitely coming. We'll feed you some lunch from our culinary program. And another thing, if you ever want to do this again, another podcast or whatever, let me know. We can talk about other topics or whatever. I would be thrilled to talk to you again. I like your energy. I like your mission. So keep me in mind for, for some time in the future. Well, I think we should talk when you have 50 years. That's what I think. What do you think? Sounds good. Sounds we got to do it. I'll have to get in touch with yeah. Allie. I'll get in touch yeah. with Allie. Or Allie, get in touch with me. Well, until yeah. next time, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye. Live in total. Aloha. Aloha.